Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today is episode 559. It's Monday, November 29th, 2010. Don't feel secure in your uh, end-of-the-year planning uh, just because it's still November. There's like 26 or 27, something like that, days left, shopping days left till Christmas. Alright, so that means that it's going to be here like that, and you know what happens between Christmas and New Year's? Nothing. Nothing happens between Christmas and New Year's. If you're, if you're in any kind of business, you know it's hard to get your, your customers to do anything during that period, except return Christmas presents they didn't want for store credit. Uh, so there's not much time left, but I do want you to take some of this time and spend it with your families, folks. Don't just spend it all on prepping, and don't just spend it all on shopping, for God's sakes. Um, Today we're going to do a listener uh, feedback show. If you want to have your email, your question, your comment, whatever featured on this show, just send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put question for Jack in the subject line. I get people sometimes wanting to know, you know, hey, well, what's your real email? What email can I send this to? What email? Send all emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It is my personal email. I do my best to answer as many of them as I can. I do read them all. Um, Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors as well here. Uh, sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf, not self. ShelfReliance specializes in shelving systems and automatic food rotation systems to keep your food storage program organized and effective and make it very easy for you to eat what you store and store what you eat. They also have a very good selection of uh, long-term storable foods with very competitive pricing. So check out ShelfReliance.com today. Remember, if you're a member of the Member Support Brigade, you get 7% off all purchases from Shelf Reliance. So make sure you check out your MSB area for that. Next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com. The absolutely wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont runs that operation. Really unique silver rounds, including the new 2010 Tea Party Silver Divisible Rounds. Uh, of course, this is going to be, we're only going to 2011 soon, so you might want to get some of those while you can. MSBs, you guys get 50 cents or a dollar or something like that off every coin just on that one particular round. But Mary Beth didn't want to do something, so she set it up. I've got it in the back office of the MSB for you. But I'll tell you what, um, my niece and nephew came over for our after Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving party. You know, that's where all the people that can't come to dinner come. And, uh, I went ahead and gave them their early Christmas present. I gave them a couple Tea Party Silver Rounds. Once again, they were very happy to get those, and uh, Dad put them away for them uh, for the future. It's a much better present than some kind of plastic crap from uh, Mattel or Hasbro. All right, um, next up, I want you guys to make sure you have subscribed to our YouTube channel. Uh, I just put out three videos over the holiday. Two were featured on the blog. I'll put the other one on the blog later today. I got a fourth one uh, that we'll upload probably today, and it'll go live tomorrow. So lots of new YouTube content coming. Uh, I think we're close to like half a million views on YouTube now. Uh, so that's a big deal. Use your help. Subscribe. Let other people know about our channel. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get a whole bunch of discounts. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. It's a great deal. And 
Uh, you should have done it over the holidays because you would have saved 15 bucks, but now you didn't, so please consider doing it anyway. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into our show. Again, if you want to hear your question or comment or commentary, uh, send an email to jack at survivalpodcast.com and put in the uh, subject line question for Jack. That'll make sure that it gets filtered right and gets considered for this. Once again, I want to remind you, my email volume is close to a 1,000 emails a day that are in direct relation to the show. I do not get to feature all of these online. And a a more likely option to get on a show is the call-in shows on Friday because there's less calls than emails. You can call in 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. And uh, leave a two-minute or less message, and you're more likely to get on the show with that. All right. First question is, uh, well, it's really more of a commentary one. It comes from a guy named Kenny down in Houston. And Kenny says, thought you might like to read this article. And uh, do like having this article for the show, but I do not like reading this article. I do not like this article. I don't like it at all because of what it's about. And it's on uh, Crone Business and... It is headlined, uh, Feds are asking, okay, for an apple that won't go brown. I'm predicting failure, says one expert in food safety. Well, I like the, the sub-headline. Uh, it's written by Shannon uh, Denny at the Associated Press, and I'll read some portions of it to you. But you might imagine the way that they're going to make an apple that won't turn brown is to do what? Genetically modify it. So here we go. Cashmere, Washington, Canadian biotechnology company has asked the U.S. to approve a genetically modified apple that won't brown soon after it's sliced, saying the improvement could boost sales of apples for snacks, salads, and other uses. U.S. apple growers say it's too soon to know whether they'd be interested in the apple. They need to resolve questions about the apple's quality, the cost of planting, and most importantly, whether people would buy it. Genetically modified, that's a bad word in our industry, said Todd Freihauer, president of the Apple Commission in Washington State, which produces more than half of the U.S. crop. Um, let me jump down in here, and I'll post the entire article if you want to uh, read it. Uh, but let me, uh, Carter said, just read some other parts of it to you. Carter said growers replant orchards all the time, and the company aims to have big growers plant apples in large blocks. So cross-pollinization is minimized. Because, you know, those bee guys, they don't fly anywhere or anything, right? Uh, Carter said he's confident the fruit won't harm the environment. Well, that's great. I'm glad Carter is confident the fruit won't harm the environment. And he submitted paperwork to the USDA and FDA to prove his point. Some people won't like it just because of what it is, he said. In the end, it's a great product. No question about it. And people will see the process used uh, to get it uh, very, get it had very sound science. Uh, companies have invested heavily in crops genetically modified to improve flavor, increase yields and nutrition, and make them drought resistant, said Andrew Krimble, executive director of the Center for Food Safety, a nonprofit public interest group based in Washington, D.C. Often, though, the genes are that define those traits are only one small part of a complex system, he said. Scientists have been saying, we're only turning one thing off. But that switch is connected to another switch and another switch, Kimbrell said. You just can't do one thing to nature. It's nice to think so, but it just doesn't work that way. He also said the non-browning technology appears to benefit apple growers and shippers more than consumers by allowing companies to sell apples that are older than they look. A Botox apple is not what people are looking for, Kimbrell said. I'm predicting failure. Uh, I'll put a link to the entire article so you can read it. I, I brought this on, though, for a couple reasons. One, 
because people think I'm nuts when I keep saying to you over and over again about the GMO soy and the GMO corn, that it won't stop there. They want GMO everything. So now we have GMO. You know, not long ago, I brought to you GMO salmon. Right, That's on the way to your store shelves. It'll be on the shelves within four years. It's approved. They're going to do it. Now we got apples. See, and maybe they will have failure here because you know what? You know who eats apples more than anybody else? Health-conscious people. We start looking at fresh fruits and vegetables, the fresh stuff that's over in the the uh, the case, right? The grocery case. The uh, what is the word I'm looking for? The uh, you know the the the, uh, the produce section, not the stuff that's in a can, not the stuff that's already prepared for us. We start looking there. We move into the realm of the people that are more health conscious, and, and maybe this guy's right. Maybe there'll be failure, but I don't know. Because I think that there's a lot of moms buying apple wedges for the little kids that are all wrapped up in their own version of the Xbox while their kids are playing the real version of the Xbox and they really don't care and apples are healthy and they're just healthier. But here's the big thing, folks. Do you know how you keep an apple from browning? It's called vitamin C. Yeah, it's just a little misting of absorbic acid onto those apples and they just don't brown for a very long time. In fact, if they brown, they've really been cut and left cut for too long. So... To avoid having to do something as massive as you know, infusing our apples with a little bit of vitamin C, they're going to genetically modify the entire freaking plant. And then, obviously, if they're going to plant it in large blocks to avoid cross-pollination, they know darn well cross-pollinization is an issue. Now, it's not as big an issue, I would think, as in some plants that uh, easily reproduce in the second generations through cross-pollination and go wild. Uh, there's not a ton of apples that go wild. So there's there's some help there. And most apple trees today in commercial environments are grafted varieties anyway. So they take rootstock and they graft on a, a piece of a mature tree because it's a faster way to grow a tree. So I'm not as concerned about cross-pollinization with this as I am with something like, oh, I don't know, canola, which just goes wild all the time. But it is a concern. My bigger concern is, though, again, I keep asking the question, where will it stop? Where will it stop? Where will we draw the line and say, you know what, not this. I mean, GMO wheat, they're making a push for that again. That got stopped the first time, but, you know, they're pushing for this now. Where will the American people, where will the people of the world start, start turn to industry and say, no more? No more. In fact, you know what, even if you get it approved, screw it, we're not buying it, we're not going to eat it. You know, and there are places already where it's almost impossible to do. I had some people get on me because I'm using Remington deer corn in my deer feeder. Well, that corn's genetically modified. Well, where can I get feed corn that isn't? So, are we going to get steamrolled over to where everything becomes like feeder corn? There's no choice. Either you use what's there or you don't have anything at all. You don't have any options. There's only so much we can grow in our backyard. Folks, corn's a perfect example. Wheat's a perfect example. Even if we have a pretty good piece of land and do some of our own grain growing, it's almost impossible to grow enough of it for things like livestock feed uh, and, and our own use without going into kind of some level of, of a true agricultural production system. But in these other things like apples, one apple tree, folks, that's all it takes. Plant one apple tree, and you don't have to worry about this. Because one apple tree, when it's mature... No, you need two. You need one for cross-pollination, right? A uh, couple apple trees in the back, the backyard, and you don't have to worry about this anymore. Your neighbor plants a couple pears, and you guys exchange. You don't have to worry about this anymore. Again, we replace 10% of our trees 
in suburban America with fruit-yielding trees, bushes, and vines. Just 10%. One in 10. We don't have to worry about this anymore because we can produce more fruit in North America in our back and front yards than we need. But it's up to us to do something about it. So as, as negative as the story is, I wanted to bring something positive to you with about it. So go kill a non-productive entity of a tree or a vine or a bush or something this coming year and plant something productive in its place. Because this is the battle that we're actually fighting. Let's take another one. All right, this next email comes from Finland, uh, which I think is really cool that we have listeners in Finland and all over the world, in fact. And this is from Polly. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to maybe make some corrections, but there might be a little bit of a um, little bit of a in English language uh, transitional issue in certain points of it. But I'm going to read it pretty much if it was written. And hey, this guy's first language isn't English, but he knows English better than a lot of people that are right here. You know what I'm saying? Um, in fact, pretty dad gone good job on it, Paul. You don't don't take what I'm saying negative. I just want to let people know why there might be a break here or there in a in a, in a conjunction or something like that. Hi, first I just uh, have to thank you for the great job you're doing. I've been listening for a long time now, almost at the beginning. For example, I've started to grow my own food storage. Um, get got myself chickens, goats, and I had a couple beehives. Started to plan my garden and started to read about permaculture. Now I'm working to delete my debt. I'm not part of your MSB yet, but you can be sure I will as soon as financial uh, time starts to be better. But anyway, the reason I'm writing now is a couple of new laws uh, that our government has made. One is passed and the other is still under consideration. First, they passed a new gun law. Finnish gun laws have already been very, very tight. This gives medical professionals, especially doctors, nurses, etc., the obligation to notify authorities if they think somebody is not suitable for owning a gun. But they also sneaked in, in addition to the law, that they have the same obligation if you even have a driver's license, not only a gun permit. Also, now it's even harder to get a permit for a new gun. That obligation was only one example of a new law. We had two school shootings where pupils uh, shot a couple of students, and it got a lot of media here. So after that, they passed a new law to protect from new incidents. Just to remind you that the liberty you have is not something to be giving away. The second law that's still under consideration is about vaccinations. The new law would make the vaccinations that the government sees as necessary to protect the people mandatory to take. So you would have to take the vaccinations they tell you to. Council of State would think which vaccinations are mandatory and local authority would be in the executive part. They say it's to protect the people from epidemics. Keep up the great work. Yours, Polly. Okay, let's look at this. First of all, I want you to see the parallels here to what's already going on in the United States. First of all, every time there's some kind of a shooting or any kind of an act, even if it doesn't directly involve a gun, if you could tie a gun to it, this is why we need stricter gun control. Never mind that the person that went into the school with the gun broke the law when they did that. Never mind that every time they discharged the weapon, whether they hit somebody or not, they were breaking the law. Never mind that every time they did hit somebody, they were breaking yet another law. Either attempted murder or murder. Never mind that they might have broke 52 laws in the process of getting their hands on the gun in the first place. All we're going to focus on is they had a gun, we got to get rid of the guns. That's the same thing they do here. They also have this where the doctors are deciding whether or not you're mentally equipped to have it. And now, on the service, that doesn't, like, you think, well, man, if a doctor says this guy's kind of a nut job, we really shouldn't be giving him a gun, right? But this is not, well, if you go for psychiatric evaluation and you've admittedly, and you admittedly have mental problems, then maybe we'll take a look at this. This is you go to the doctor. 
You have to be to the doctor to get a prostate exam, and you make the wrong comment because he does what he does when doctors check your prostate, and maybe he decides this guy is kind of like a little bit off because he's some pervert doctor that likes prostate exams. All of a sudden, you're on the no-gun list. Now, are they doing that to us in America today? Not unless you're a veteran going to the VA. And it always starts with one segment of society, and then it moves into the other segments of society. But what you see here, using the medical industry to take guns away from people, and no good crisis going to waste. It's really not different no matter... When people say, like, could you make the show more friendly to international audiences? If you really think about it, um, there's with political stuff, it's not different anywhere. The marketing message that goes with the politics is the same, but the goal is the same disarm, weaken, and make the people dependent upon the government. And the government knows best. And the second one's a perfect example of this. So here's what I want to know. All these governments with this mandatory vaccination crap that they're looking at doing. So when I say, no, what are you going to do? Hold me down and put a needle in my arm against my will? Is that really what our governments are going to do? And let me ask you, do you think the people of the United... Now, I don't know what Finland will do. I mean, those guys are Vikings. I mean, I don't know, maybe Finn, Maybe this will make the Finns snap out. Maybe Polly and his brethren over there will say, you know what, this is too far. You know, Or has the socialism bought them out enough to the point where they'll, they'll be compliant and they let the needles go in? I don't know. But I want to hear from you today. If they ever do this in America, what's your line in the sand? When they start taking guns away from people for medical reasons, is that the line in the sand or is it when they try to take everybody's gun? When they start forcing vaccinations on people, is that your line in the sand? Or is it when they start forcing them on you? And by line in the sand, I don't mean necessarily that we're taking up arms and pulling Congress clowns out of their chairs. I think there's a point where we could get there. And God, I hope we never do. You know, if, if the true radicals in this movement turn out to be right and start rounding people up, that's the day we, that's, I'm sorry, there's no other option at that point. But what I mean by line in the sand is, is there a point where you'll say no? Is there a point where you'll actually pick one issue and say, I'm not, I'm not letting go of this issue until it's taken care of? I just want to know. I'm not telling you you should or you shouldn't. Just, uh, just a thought. Uh, next email comes from Jason. Jason says, my name is Jason. Uh, today, November 29th, my son's first birthday, and we'd like to share a little bit of it with you. Closes a picture of our family of three and of a Kool-Aid rack I got for free from my workplace. I work at a nine-branch marketplace called uh, Hugo's. And where, uh, it's cold, I'll just leave that out. Um, I thought it might be po a possible resource for preppers on the cheap who need food storage racks. It seems like stores get rid of these racks fairly often. Also, I'd like to mention today we're joining the members brigade. Thank you for what you do. You're an inspiration. Seriously, take care and keep on rocking. Well, the reason I put that on is he sent me these pictures and maybe I'll post a picture or two, um, online today and link to them from the show notes. But it's a pretty nice food storage rack. Uh, it's got kind of these open-ended things on both ends, and then it's got um, like a centerpiece with even bigger rack systems. They're kind of on an angle, so things would roll forward. Uh, I could see a lot of use for it. It's also on casters, so it can be moved around and rotated to get to one side or the other, since there's basically three access points to get stuff out of it. And I think he's right. I think especially with like branded uh, shelves, what will happen is... You know, some company will go and, and come up with a, a new marketing campaign. And they'll, you know, do advertising online, they'll do advertising offline, they'll do, they'll do all kinds of things around this campaign. And one of the things that they often do is put together a store display for it. 
And then they take that store display and they have these reps that go out to you know every Kroger or every Tom Thumb or whoever they have in their distribution channel, and the reps bring these racks in and set them up. Well, eventually they come up with a new idea or a new spinner. The store says, you know, we can do this for 30 days. And then you're going back in the conventional shelf space or what have you. Well, when that's over, it would actually in many situations be more expensive to go out and reclaim all those shelves than to just tell the stores do what you want with them. The stores mostly throw them away. So if you go see a couple local uh, grocery branches and explain what you're looking for, Say, look, I'm looking for shelving. Uh, when you guys have, like, for special marketing programs and stuff that I can use at home for my own storage of stuff, um, that, that when you guys discontinue them or the manufacturer doesn't want them back or whatever, you're going to discard them. Could you give me a call? I'll come take it off your hands. A lot of times, guys going to be happy to do that. And you might have to hit three or four stores up uh, to get one in the next couple months. But if you do that, odds are you're going to be able to uh, get that done. And I think maybe you might want to talk to the produce manager while you're there anyway about maybe some leftover produce for your composting. And all of a sudden, the stuff that the grocery stores start throwing away becomes something that you can use in your everyday preps. So, uh, great email. Thanks for sharing that idea. That's one I, you know, I, as a kid I worked in a grocery store for a while and it's one I should have mentioned a long time ago. Never even really thought about it. Um, but it's a great resource and it's good quality heavy duty shelving. Because when these manufacturers put these specials out, they don't want you to look at the shelving and get a cheap view of the product because of the shelving, even if it's designed to hold something like Kool-Aid. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, so this next question comes to us from Patrick. Patrick says, Thanks so much for all the great information on your show. I've started a small garden as well as started storing food. I've been really interested in setting up a solar backup system, either portable or permanent. There are tons of sites selling components, but I'm still not certain about components I would need for a basic portable system. What recommendations do you have for a portable system? Batteries are heavy. Do you put the rig on a cart? I would love to hear more on solar specifically. Uh, more on, I think backup power is what he meant, specifically solar. My solar backup system is almost $2,000, but I heard you recently say on a call-in show a basic system should be, uh, could be self-built for about $500. Why the big price one? When he says my solar backup system, he's talking about a product that's out there. Um, well, first of all, because people that put together products want to make money on them, and generally, the, if you're selling something online today and you're selling it direct, you're trying to mark it up about double. And that particular system has some little niceties and features and things brought into it uh, that are beyond what you would build if you went and built something for 500 bucks. Not that it's going to work any better, but maybe it looks a little better or is there an easy, easy, easier for you to maintain or access certain things on um, from a, a you know product built shipped type arrangement. So obviously, if you're going to build something yourself, you're always going to end up spending less than if you have somebody do it for you. The question is, can you do it? Perfect example would be a house. If you go out and get a house built today for two hundred thousand dollars, odds are if you did all the work yourself, you could build that house for about seventy-five thousand to a hundred thousand dollars. And that's if you did no subcontracting, you did everything from pouring the concrete all the way up to the last shingle on the roof on your own. All to finish everything. You could probably do it for less than seventy-five. You could probably do it for seventy. If you did it on pure materials, if you were smart, if you sourced things the right way, did all that stuff, you could probably pull that off. So that there's the big disparity. But the other thing is, yes, I mean, I look at it this way: I could probably put in in just about any house in America using contractors to do some of the work a two kilowatt solar system for under ten thousand dollars on a roof. Now, if I can do that for ten thousand, 
and then I can get a government rebate off of that. I don't see spending $2,000 for a box that's going to run my refrigerator for 45 minutes maximum, which is what some of these systems out there selling in this price range will do. So if I'm going to do that myself, I'm going to build it myself. And here's the reality. All you need to build this system is a couple batteries, and you can do 6 volts you know, wired up to do full 12-volt output. You can do a couple 12-volts that are wired up to just stay at 12 volts and create more storage, however you want to do so You can do one big 12-volt battery if you want to. It's up to you. Depends on how much power you want in reserve. You need something called a charge controller, which keeps the batteries from overcharging. You need a charger. You need a solar panel. So that you're running, or you actually, the solar panel runs the charge down through the charge controller into the battery. You need an inverter. That's all you really need. The more solar panels, the more watts of solar panel you have, the, the more rapidly whatever solar radiation you have is going to charge the battery, and the more you're going to be able to pull back out of the battery. The more batteries you have, the more charge you're going to be able to build up, and the longer you're going to go between be, between the sun shining and being able to use it. And, th and that's it. And once you've built that system, and there's all kinds of sites online you can look at, and, and maybe I'll go ahead and do one uh, YouTube video one day for you guys how to do one of these things, but it's not hard. And it, It's harder in your head than it will be the day you try to do it. The most expensive components are the batteries and the solar panels. Uh, the inverters aren't cheap, but you know they're, they're not that expensive either. Um, and you can build something that will at least do things like run a, a laptop computer in a DSL modem or a TV. and You could build a light right into it. There's a lot of great kind of tough rubber-made uh, boxes that are really designed to be like toolboxes or totes that have wheels on them so that it would be portable. You drill a couple holes in there, use some wire ties to tie things on the outside and on the inside. You could even do something like get an old car light and uh, fix that directly to the to the box itself, kind of from the inside pointing out, so that you can run that 12-volt straight off the battery, and then you have a light source. You know, there's it's unlimited what you could do. You could even put, you know, a small uh, AC-powered radio inside the box, so that way all you do is take it out and plug it in. You've got an emergency radio. You keep some other stuff in the box with it. You don't want to bury up your batteries, though, so you got to kind of have a little side space for just a little bit of extra stuff in there. But it's not hard to do, and you should be able to do that, again, for under 500 bucks. The more batteries, the more you go above 500 bucks. Whether or not you get used batteries or new batteries, you know, reconditioned uh, used batteries, you might be able to save them some more money. Really good, large, you know, batteries, you might have to spend a little bit more. It's all about how much you want it to do for you. But there's no reason to go out and spend $2,000 for a solar backup generator, as they call them. I don't know, I just think $2,000... For a couple batteries, uh, 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 you know, 60 or 100 watts solar panel, an inverter, and a charge controller, I just think it's too much. And I think this is one project you're definitely better off building yourself. Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, this next question is interesting, and I'm going to do the best I can with it. It's not one that I have a complete answer for. Um, it comes from Garrett. Garrett says, I plan on buying land in Texas. I was wondering if you could have livestock at a BOL. If you're going to be living somewhere else, if you took necessary precaution, large fence around property, watering hole on property, etc., could you let livestock like goat, sheep, cows, chickens, rabbits graze property? If so, what type of animal would work best, and what are the other precautions that you would normally think of to make sure that they were all right? Thanks, Garrett. Um, and then he gives me some interesting ideas about why he wants to do this. But here, here's the thing. Um, definitely it can be done. And before I go further, I'm going to say that my animal husbandry skills are pretty much limited to dogs, cats, birds, uh, reptiles, pigeons, chickens, and rabbits. 
Uh, I've never really taken care of, at least long term, uh, stock like goats and, and, and cattle and things like that. Uh, but I think that's what you're going to have to look to is larger livestock that can largely fend for itself and protect itself. Now, you still have, like, with cattle, you have maybe calving season, and you have danger from coyotes. But at least, you know, uh, you know, a black Angus uh, is a pretty formidable thing standing against a coyote. It really is. Uh, something like goats, man, they'll take a goat. So you've got predator issues if you're not there to keep an eye on them, especially at certain times of the year when they're most vulnerable. The other thing is you're going to need a rather large piece of property to do this. Um, you can't go fence in, you'll say, 10 acres and put you know 10 head of cattle on there and, and leave them alone and not give them any supplemental feed and not move them from one area. I mean, first of all, they're going to destroy the land. And second of all, it's not really enough land to support. I, I mean, it sounds like ten, one cow per acre. Man, if you're managing that property and you're bringing them supplemental feed and all, yeah, you can do that, and it's still... It's still excessive. It's amazing how much acreage that working cattle operations with, with large heads actually do. Uh, your goats and things like that, I'm going to worry again about predation. Rabbits, just not suitable. You know, you, the best thing you can do for, for that is improve rabbit habitat on the property and go there and shoot drag rabbits for the pot that are, that are wild rabbits. Chickens, the, you could probably do chickens. If you can get them roosting in a tree somewhere, if you can wrap the trees with metal so the raccoons and stuff can't get up in the trees, but you're probably going to lose quite a few chickens. But that one you might pull off. Um, I just don't think... It, it, let me put it this way. You're going to need to get like somebody from your local agricultural extension or something like that involved, and you're going to have to put together a formal plan to do something like this, uh, and have some level of human interaction. I know people do it, but the people that I know that do it generally do it with fairly large acreages, 40 acres or more. Most of the people I know that do something like this, we're talking hundreds to thousands of acres, where they can let cattle free range over thousands and thousands of acres. Uh, so it's a large-scale operation, not something you're going to be buying as a bug-out location uh, as you, after you get out of college, which is what this guy wants to do. So I think that... If anything, if you have enough land, maybe you can do a few head of cattle. Um, but you're going to need to have somebody checking up on these animals. Uh, you're going to need to get out there at some frequency. But you can certainly do it without being there every day. But I think that even with a few head, you're going to probably want to bring in some supplemental feed and things like that. So you're going to want a distance to that bug allocation that you can get out there frequently. Um, if anybody has ideas for this beyond what I'm saying, let us know in the show notes. Don't flame me if I'm wrong. Again, I don't have experience with large livestock, with, with cattle and, and horses and things like that. I don't know riding them and, and some basic grooming and basic care. I've never actually taken care of them, so that's kind of outside my realm. Goats we did in Pennsylvania, but we had a couple goats and we had one for milking and we had, you know, actually we had two does and then we had a buck and we would a couple young ones for slaughter every year. Um, way, way, way back, um, and even my grandparents left that go uh, at a certain point. They just thought it was more work than it was worth. Um, and, but that was in a small contained area. We had to feed them and take care of them every day. So it's different than just leaving something out there on its own. Now, if you can get 1,000 acres or more, you could start to really look at doing some things. And even if you had... Unlimited funds with high fencing on a thousand acres, you bring in some exotic game and let the let the animals kind of run run wild to put in some automated feeding and stuff, automated watering, and, and you know you could do 
a lot with a thousand acres. Twenty acres or less, which is probably ten acres or less by reading your email, I don't know that you can pull this off, especially some of the more affordable land in Texas and some of these harsher environments, it's going to be even harder to leave these animals out on their own. So it's something you're really going to have to consider. Let's go ahead and take another one. Okay, Dean here, who is uh, the author of the uh, Country Consultant blog, which is a great resource. I'll put a link to her blog today in today's show notes. Uh, but <clears throat> she sends in an email and says, um, do you know anything about the gunmaker in Granbury, Texas named Bond Arms? I was doing some research on products made in the USA. I decided to narrow my search to products made in our home state of Texas. I ran across a review of the Bond Arms Snake Slayer. Have you ever heard of this company in Granbury, Texas? What can you tell me about this firearm as a self-defense weapon? Thank you for your help, Dean. Uh, well, first, I'm glad you're asking about it for self-defense, because I think it's probably a pretty cool little self-defense weapon. Uh, what this is, folks, if you've never seen one, it looks like an over-and-under shotgun design, but it's a little pistol. It's like a little Derringer-sized pistol that you pull a lever and it breaks open like a over-and-under break-action shotgun. And into those two holes, you can place two .45 long Colts or two .410 shotgun shells. And this, you know, everybody's all hyped up about the Taurus Judge with the shotgun shells. This thing was around doing this long before any Taurus even thought of the Judge. Um, and it's, I think, for self-defense, it's useful with some limitations. One, you got two shots. Two, um, .45 long Colt and even .410 at any distance greater than, you know, really up close and personal aren't your best um, knockdown, you know, power knockdown ratio rounds. Uh, .45 long Colt, I would say better than the .410 out of that little short barrel type thing. Up close and personal, a four, you know, two .410s each with three double O buckshot pellets let into your chest from about four feet. Um, yeah, that's going to take care of business. So, as a self-defense tool, this Bond Arms pistol is really about that very up-close, you know, personal experience where the the other side of this is the person's close enough to, to get their hands on you in, in most scenarios. So if you're going to have a weapon like that for self in fact, any weapon for self-defense, one thing you need to learn beyond being able to use your weapon is breaking contact, withdrawing, creating distance between yourself, pushing back to a three-meter distance, and drawing the weapon all in one motion. Because that way, now I have the opportunity to give you, maybe, you know, depends on whether you're armed or not as well, but to give you the opportunity to get down on your face and avoid being shot, or put big holes in you. But personally, personally for me, I would rather carry something like a small frame 9mm or even 380 um, if I'm, you know, trying to get a smaller weapon, and that Bond Arms gun is large enough that I don't see it as really being much more comfortable to carry than carrying something full size, like a full size Glock, or I, I carry 1911 when I'm in suitable clothing for that. Um, so I don't really, it's kind of a neat gun, and it'll do the job, but I just think there's better self defense tools out there. Uh, lastly, I don't like the name of it. They call it the, uh, the, the, what do they call it here? It's the snake something. Snake Slayer. Uh, I don't like guns marketed for killing snakes. Right? If you have to kill a snake, you have to kill a snake. But the concept that you need to run around with this little hand cannon in case you happen to see a snake is ridiculous. People, some of you guys are, have irrational fear of snakes. Trust me, snakes don't want anything to do with you. They don't want to be bothered by you. They don't want to bother you. They want to be left alone. 
And in most situations where we have people bit by snakes today in America, you know where they're bit, folks? The hand or the arms. Now, you know what that tells you? That they were messing with the snake. So if we'll leave them alone, in, in most situations, we're not going to have a problem. Most legitimate bites, the snake bites the person before they ever see it. So they step over a rock and they land in the middle of its back. and it bites. Well, the gun's not going to help you then either. You've been bit already. So don't like the marketing around it. Um, don't think it's the best tool in the world for self-defense, but I sure wouldn't put you down for carrying one, I'll tell you that. And uh, I've, I've held one in my hands quite a few times because it's one of those things that's just kind of neat. And every time I've been to a store where they're selling it, I, I pick it up and look at it. And I've thought about buying it. But when it comes down to practicality, I just don't know that I really see it over other things I already possess. I would love to shoot one. I think it'd be a hoot to shoot one. Let's go ahead and take another question. This one makes me feel bad just reading it. Um, this is from Arlen. Arlen says, My little boy burned his hands on our wood stove last night. Both hands have second-degree burns on the pot pads of the fingers and palm of the hand. For further reference, can you tell me what kind of herbs and preparations or at least field expedient solutions can be used to help heal burns? I don't think that going to an emergency room will be a wise choice for this kind of thing in the future. Thanks, Arlen. Um, hopefully you took him to the emergency room for this this time. And obviously, folks, this is a lesson if you have something like a wood-burning stove and all. You kids need to be aware of it, and you need to do what you can to keep them away from it. But there's also times when kids are going to do what kids are going to do. I remember when my uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law came to Pennsylvania and we were living up there. We took them to a place called Carini's, little home-grown type, you know, uh, family Italian place in uh, this little town. It was the only real restaurant in the town we lived in. And uh, they brought the food out screaming hot. And I remember my niece, Meyer, sitting in the high chair. She's probably about one year old. And her dad had ordered, it was either like a penne pasta and like a dish thing. But the, I mean, it was literally bubbling when they brought it out to your table. That's how they serve the food there. And she stuck her little hand straight into the sauce. And, of course, it stuck to her hand. It burned her really bad. So uh, I can only imagine how much worse it is with two hands on a wood stove. Um, lucky you didn't, get, you didn't get branded, basically. Uh, so I feel bad for him, but we'll see what I can do with burns. Obviously, first choice is real medical help. I mean, that, for especially second degree burns to a child. I mean, third degree burns, you're in, you're in danger of infection and, and all types of other things. Second degree burns, there is some infection danger, but it's not you know the medical emergency that third degree burn is. Uh, but second degree burns to a child, especially on the hands, immediate medical attention. If we're ever in a situation, though, where that medical attention is not available or we have a burn that is not severe enough to go to the emergency room and we want to do some home health care, herbs are actually really a great thing to use for burns, both for treatment, aiding healing, and prevention of infection. Um, the first step for any burn, that's it's, 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 you want to like soothe it and stop the pain. And again, none of this stuff applies to third-degree burns, folks. I, I, that's beyond my my medical knowledge of anything. And I'm not an herbalist trained as an herbalist or anything. I just know what I know from over the years. Uh, but the, the, the best thing I know to stop pain is aloe. Whether it's you break an aloe leaf and squeeze the juice right out of it onto the, the thing or using an aloe prep or prepared gel or what have you. But as far as reducing the pain and actually helping to begin the healing, aloe is the best thing that I know of. There are some other things, though, that can help, especially with some with pain reduction and definitely with healing and preventing infection. A salve made from comfrey is um, a very traditional treatment for any kind of wound, not just burns. 
Uh, maybe not the greatest in the world for alleviating pain, uh, but has a very um, antibacterial effect, uh, very good at aiding healing and preventing infection. Agrimony is another herb uh, that, that is, has a long-standing tradition uh, for use for the healing of wounds and burns. Um, some other things you might consider would be uh, a great relief tool to, again, suppress the initial pain is uh, brew up some chamomile tea. Obviously, let that cool and soak a compress in chamomile, cold chamomile tea, which could build up. Uh, you could brew up some really high strength and dump a bunch of ice in there if you have ice on hand to speed the cooling. Uh, but using a cold compress of chamomile tea, uh, lavender oil may also actually be really good for soothing of burns and would actually have a lot of antibacterial uh, uh, properties to it. Lavender oil is a, a highly antibacterial thing. Uh, but really when you look at preventing infection, uh, one of the best things you could use is a cream made up of calendula, also known as pot marigold. That's also going to have some relief uh, in it for you to reduce pain, uh, but it's extremely likely to help reduce infection. So I would look more, if I was really stuck and I had to worry about infection and pain long-term with a burn in a, in a bug-out location, a long-term scenario, something like that, aloe for the initial relief. That would be my first choice. And I would also want to make up a salve, and I would want to have calendula and comfrey on hand, and I would want to make up a salve with that. You could do that with anything from, you know, uh, from lard to beeswax to, to help, or even water if you were stuck with no, nothing to be more of a thickening agent for it. Uh, but a compress of, of comfrey and calendula on that wound and then covered over is going to do a lot to either prevent infection or help withdraw out any infection uh, that does occur. That would be my best bet. Again, I'm not a master herbalist. That's kind of the best I can do uh, with that question. But those are the typical things that an herbalist would turn to in that situation. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting question. Um, it comes from Darren. Darren says, I'm a capitalist, last person on the face of the earth to embrace socialism. But recently, I have a nagging thought that I can't dispel. I cannot see why both sides of the political aisle would not embrace it. Socialize the Federal Reserve. If the federal government can take over private corporations in order to preserve jobs, it's all for common good, right? Then why can't we say, hey, in 1913 we made a stake in privatizing the printing and the control of money. We are going to bring that responsibility back under purview of government. Theoretically, it would save taxpayers lots of money and perhaps bring back some transparency, hopefully. Your thoughts, Darren. Uh, here's the thing. We don't need to socialize Federal Reserve. We need to disband the Federal Reserve and put the power of the control of the money back into the hands of Congress the way it was constitutionally designed to be. Congress is supposed to set the weights and the measures of the currency. That means controlling the currency itself. That's what they're supposed to do. Federal Reserve, for all the hoopla, is not unconstitutional because if Congress has power to do something, they have power to give that power and delegate it to another entity. That's what they did in a very nefarious way in 1913. I'm not saying it was good. I'm just saying it is constitutional. I'm not saying it was wrong or it wasn't wrong. It is wrong. It's still constitutional. It's still legal. Well, it's also legal for the Congress to say, you know what? Since we made you, we can unmake you, take you away and bring you back. Now, here's the big thing. Whenever I say this, whenever I say the control of the money should go under the Congress, people say, but Jack, then we would give the congressmen the printing presses and they would print so much money and they would do, and they, you know what? We're already, we, seven trillion dollars. Seven trillion. Oh, I'm sorry, seven trillion six hundred billion since the beginning of the crisis. 
all with debt. So if the Congress would have printed the seven trillion, we know where it went, who got it, and we can hold somebody accountable for it. See, here's the thing. Well, let me, let me give the objection and kill the objection first. The whole point of the objection is if Congress could create the money, they would have no cap on spending. Right now, they don't have a cap on spending. They have a debt ceiling. They voted higher all the time. And not one time, not one time, before you give me this objection, since 1913 to 2010, 97 years, 97 years, not one time has Congress proposed spending, gone through the channels, gotten to the president, president gets the spending bill, inks it off with his name, throws the pen down and says, this is a historic moment for America. Has the Federal Reserve stepped in and said, no, you can't have the money. Not once. So controlling the production of money to create in government spending has never, ever been done even once. So the government's going to spend that money anyway. The Federal Reserve prints that money and all the other money that we don't know where it goes. But in the end, it comes down to this, folks. Your government is responsive to the people that control the money. So, of course, they're responsive to Federal Reserve, the banks, the financial institutions, and all the big corporate entities that spring out around that that get their money from that little faucet that they turn on anytime they want to. A little cartoon I put, the Ben Bernanke just turns it on and turns it off by buying the bonds from the Goldman Sachs, who makes their living screwing the American people. Okay? If we took that control back to Congress, we would be able to see where every single penny went. So that when Forbes asks the Federal Reserve for information on the Freedom of Information Act, the Federal Reserve says we're exempt from that, and they say, well, you guys spent $2 trillion that we don't know where it went. And they say various financial institutions around the world would actually have an answer for that. But the big thing is the people now would control the money. Because the people would control the people that get to control the money. In other words, your Congress clowns would control the money. And that means that since you control them, you control the money. So it would make them more accountable to us. Is it a perfect solution? Would everybody sing Kumbaya? Would all the problems in America be over? No. But you know what would be over? Debt for the nation. We would be a debt-free nation. We would create our currency as it was necessary for the business of the people, and it would be backed by the nation itself. Can gold play up? Should we go back to a gold standard? Gold should play a role in this. I don't know that it should be one for one, one dollar for one dollar in gold, because gold fluctuates. But the nation's gold reserves, to me, should go into a part of a formula for what the cap on the money is. And here's what you, this is what people that, that just think there's a magic bullet solution to this don't understand. The reality is it doesn't matter what backs your currency. It matters how much currency there is. It's the cap. How much we can produce. Because the total number of dollars is directly proportional to inflation. The more dollars, the more inflation. Unless you print $7 trillion and a bunch of it vanishes and being held by foreign entities and you don't know where it is, and that keeps the inflation in check until when? Until they dump it. And there's a dollar sell-off going on right now. And all of this crap is invisible to us because of the Federal Reserve. Now, you can call it conspiracy theory, you can call it whatever you want, but when the United States Congress pulls Ben Bernanke in front of them and says, where did the $2 trillion go? You wouldn't tell Ford, uh, Forbes, now you're going to tell us. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve looks straight across the aisle and says, we don't have to tell you and we're not going to. And that just ends up with everybody being okay? That's not a conspiracy. That's a reality. It's not hidden. It's not disguised. And everything I'm telling you can be verified if you go to the Federal Reserve look at it on their own website. 
So socialized Federal Reserve, my ass. Turn the currency back to what it's supposed to be, the people's currency, a public currency, and let us see what you're doing with it. And that will eliminate debt, cease us being a debtor nation, and put control back into the hands of the populace, which is where it absolutely belongs. Let's go ahead and take another one. This next email is kind of an example of the old saying, when it rains it pours. This comes from Donna. Donna says, um, the New York Times story about a wild weather event this year in South Dakota is a perfect illustration of why we need to be prepared for getting hit with local disasters. Would you talk a bit about serial disasters and being prepared for them? You have a great podcast. Thank you, Donna. Uh, and Donna sends a link to this article out in the New York Times. Storm upon storm for South Dakota. I'll read some of the article to you. The storm slammed into the dusty prairie town with a clatter of falling bricks, hail-shattered windows, punched holes in roofs, and mangled cars. The clumps of ice were left to melt, but one, an unusual spiked orb the size of a cantaloupe, was preserved in the freezer of an old ranch hand. Locals later claimed it was not even the largest hailstone to fall that day, but it added that it had shrunk a bit while in the freezer before electricity was restored. But when the official measurements were made, a record setting 1.93 pounds and 8 inches in diameter, the results confirmed what the still visible trail of damage had already made painfully apparent. That was some storm. This record, says Leslie G. Scott, the ranch hand, I think I'm going to hold on to it for a while. Even in the agricultural state that has always uh, prided itself on stoically accepting the offerings of unpredictable skies, here at the heart of the continent, South Dakota is nearing the end of an unusually punishing year of weather. The year began as residents were still digging out of a record-setting statewide dump of 15.4 inches of snow, and the ensuing months had delivered a parade of ice storms, tornadoes, floods, uh, with a climatic thud of the nation's largest hailstone. The seven, uh, uh, the seven presidential disaster declarations issued here, part of a record 78 nationwide so far this year. Folks, did you know that? We've had 78 presidential uh, directives, uh, declarations of disaster this year. 78. Yes, you haven't really heard about it the way you did when someone else was in power. Not shilling for him or anything. I'm just saying, there's the media for you. This hailstone would have been George Bush's fault on CNN. Um, you know, but I guess Barack, and to be fair, he doesn't have anything to do with hailstones for God's sakes, but it just bugs me a little bit. More than double the number of any previous year, naming all but 10 of the 66 counties as a disaster area, uh, so many times over. After losing roads and power lines, watching homeowners displaced and crops drown, the residents now speak with an exhausted fatalism, uh, though rarely with complaint. Governor Michael Rounds with typical understatement said, we just happen to have a run of bad weather. Financial impact on the bad weather, bad weather is difficult to calculate, but the state has estimated at least $112 million in damage to public infrastructure, the loss of more than 6% of the year's harvest of corn, soybeans, and other crops, and untold costs of disrupted lives of the state's 812,000 residents. The disaster declaration allowed the state and local governments to recoup up to 75% of the cost of uninsured losses from the federal government. Federal crop insurance has also offset much of the loss of the farms. In other words, the state took the loss and the federal government bailed out the state. I'm not saying that's bad. This might be a place where, you know, that state's been sending money to the feds forever and now they're getting some of it back. But... It's just another burden on the federal budget that's already ready to bust. Nevertheless, the state secretary of agriculture called it one of the most devastating years in memory. Uh, and you can read the rest of the article yourself. I just want to talk about um, 
what Donna originally wanted me to talk about with this article. The concept that it's not just a disaster, it's that sometimes disasters kind of line up in succession. And there's one, and then there's another, and then there's another, and then there's another. And I said the old cliche, when it rains it pours. Well, there's a reason that cliches exist. Because time has proven that they're accurate. And sometimes it does feel like when it rains it pours. There could be no better example than... Let's look back to Hurricane Katrina and, and the storm that everybody forgets about that came in just a couple weeks later and hit not right on top, but right in the same area, Hurricane Rita. Yeah. The one-two punch. Well, South Dakota this year, folks, I mean, these guys will take the one, the two, the three, the four, the five, the six, seven, eight combination punch. Tornadoes, uh, ice storms, early blizzards. Windstorms, dust. I mean, it's been brutal for South Dakota this year. And if you live in Texas or Georgia or California or Washington, South Dakota seems so far away. And it seems like the place where stuff like that's gonna happen. And at some levels it is. There's a reason those people are stoic about weather. I mean, they live in a kind of a harsh environment, especially with, I mean, South Dakota, North Dakota, that whole area. The winters? I mean, <laughs> They make the winters that we go through in the northern, northeastern United States look like a joke. But because of that, we have a tendency when we're sitting you know, half a continent away to think, well, that doesn't happen here. And the reality is, I don't care where you live, I can line up ten environmental disasters in a row that could affect you. And we all have the potential to get knocked down and be on the way back up and take another punch and be on the way back up yet again and crawling up the ropes like a boxer and taking yet another punch. And that's why our preps need to be deeper than we think they need to be. They need to be more long-term than we think they need to be. I'll, I'll ask you, dealing with all this crap, if you're living in South Dakota and you're in the middle of this and you've, you've taken it on the face over and over and over again, maybe lost a job because of this or lost party, your, your, your harvest if you're a farmer or what have you, you have a year's worth of food put away down in the basement where it's safe even from the tornadoes and you've, you've, you've stayed out of debt and you've done all the things we talked about on this show, it sucks. Don't think that it, you just skate through it, but are you not better off? Are you not going to be more likely to get through this? And we do need to be aware that there is the potential sometimes where it almost seems like the stars are aligned against us. They're really not. You know, that, that downtrodden viewpoint is something I just will never continence. But that's, it's not what's really happening, but it sure can feel that way. So be prepared for more than one disaster, I guess, the lesson is here. And uh, if you're the kind of person that does it, this might not be a bad time of the year to send your thoughts and prayers to the folks in South Dakota. It has been a rough year. And I know there's other places and there's other people that need them, but uh, these guys could use it. And I want you to think about, man, it's almost a two-pound chunk of ice. You get hit in the head with something like that, man, you could you could check out tomorrow. There's another lesson there in fatalism. Back in 2000 or 99, I think it was 1999, we had a huge storm here in Arlington, Fort Worth area. And uh, there was one where the large tornado hit downtown Fort Worth and destroyed the Bank One building down there. Just it looked like it looked like the bombing from the Murrah Federal building when, the, when after this tornado hit that building. Just throwing uh, shards of glass everywhere. Storm went and, and, and split in two, and another tornado went one direction, and one hit right in my backyard. I mean, literally in my backyard. One block over, my wife was actually at a gym, drove an you know, angle around the damn thing without even knowing it was on the ground. She was dumb and didn't stay, stay where she was. 
uh, tore apart the Etna building, ripped uh, overpasses down two places where it basically dropped huge, not overpasses, but the big signs that go over the, uh, the, the highways, two places where those things were just dropped, where if they would have landed on a car, it would have killed everybody inside it. Uh, no one got hurt. No one was even injured in all of this. Storm, you know, basically the tornadoes calmed down. The storm just kept raging with hail and everything. Uh, went down south, uh, southeast of us. And a man was hit in the head with a large hailstone. Uh, gave him a brain contusion and eventually he died. With all that damage, I was killed by a hailstone. There's a lesson there too. We're mortal. And when it's our time, it's our time. So be prepared for the people you leave behind. It could be a weather event. It could be a truck on the road. Make sure that you're preparing beyond the weather events and beyond the end of the world as we know it. You're also preparing for the everyday things because it's one thing to be a survivalist, but if you're a real survivalist, you prepare so that your family can survive even if you're not there. Let's take another one. This is an interesting one from a guy named Ryan. Ryan says, uh, I have an idea I wanted to share with you and your audience. I think it's valuable. In a bug-out situation, be it a regional or Tito-Waki If your second vehicle, spouse, neighbor, friend, even has tow bars on it, you could flat tow a full load of gear behind you. The advantage is that you get more capacity for towing your preps with vehicle redundancy for mechanical breakdown or both in, in, in our situation. A diesel truck and a petrol SUV, uh, dual fuel keep capabilities. I might even mount brackets on both vehicles so I could pull either rig. Just an idea for next bug out show. I found cheap tow bars online for 125 bucks. I don't plan to do it unless the shit hits the fan, but I don't care. Uh, so I don't care if they're too, not too high speed or low drag. Thanks for your show. Con regards, Ryan. I would say if you go ahead and mount your brackets on there, you're going to need to do that because otherwise you're not going to be able to tow. I would say try it before you rely on it. Make sure it works. I've seen tow bar situations work really good. And I've seen them not work so good. And I've seen some tow bars that they work okay, but you really need to have somebody in that other vehicle doing a little bit of wheel turning once in a while. Um, and maybe aiding with some braking. depends on what kind of vehicle's towing what kind of vehicle. But you can do it, and it's a decent idea. I would also say that one of the other things that this does for you, if you have two vehicles, regardless of what their fuel source is, if you keep them both full all the time, if one just can't make the trip on the gas, you can just flip them, you know, it's almost out of gas, okay, we're going to throw in the towel on this, flip them around, move some of your load, and switch vehicles. So not just a mechanical breakdown, but being out of fuel. And definitely, yes, you have a diesel truck and a gas truck, you could, you know, use whatever fuel you come across during a bug out. Um... You know, the stuff, though, with people with the fantasies of bugging out from Chicago to Idaho all the way across the country, uh, I think that in a real shit hit the fan, that's not going to be very practical. So you're going to have to reduce your range on your bug out plans, uh, to me in the first place, unless you're planning to jump awful early. And then one of the big pl things you can't get away from is like an EMP type event. Uh, so... Uh, that necessitates kind of being a little bit closer in of itself because of all the other the problems that it will cause. So, and we may, you know, we may get zero warning on something like an EMP. Uh, solar flare activity, we have some pre pre knowledge of it, but if it was some kind of an attack based EMP, we'd have, we might have none. So, um, good idea. Definitely not a bad thing to add to your preps. Something I may do for a variety of reasons. Uh, it may not even be just in a bug out, but if you have a vehicle breakdown somewhere and it's something you can fix, but the vehicle is down and out, being able to go get one of your other vehicles and tow it home and do the repair on your own in a day-to-day -day situation, probably not a bad idea. Uh, let's take the last one for the day. 
Um, this goes from Derek. This is, are there any Derek says, are there any preps for someone who is planning on taking a pay cut for an extended period of time? Currently working at a job that I hate. My dream job is to be a professional pilot. The only debt I have is a personal loan from my grandfather for flying. My, the aviation industry for pilots is weak, but expected to rally within five years. It's highly likely that when I get to the sta stage in which I need to start getting a flying job, the pay will not be great and probably less than what I make now. My car is paid off and I got rid of my apartment to rent out a room in a home to minimize my cost of living as much as I can. I feel it's worth it because it's my dream. The only thing I'm happy doing, all I want to do for work, I enjoy learning all I can and improving myself towards the career. Are there some good preps you can uh, for planning to take a pay cut? Uh, let's take the generic question first. You're planning on taking a pay cut for any reason. You're doing it voluntarily. You don't have to do it, but you're doing it for lifestyle. You're doing it for choice. You're doing it for whatever reason there is. Okay, the first thing that you do before you do anything else is cut your pay yourself. Take the pay that you are getting beyond. So you say your new salary is going to be, I don't know what a starting pilot makes, but it might be 50 grand a year. It might be less. Because um, you might, you're probably flying some cargo crap to, you know, Sheboygan, Illinois or something like that. You're definitely not an American Airlines captain uh, as your first job as a pilot. It just doesn't happen. So it's 50k. Let's say that right now you're making 85. I don't again. I, these are arbitrary. Doesn't even matter. Let's say 100, just to just to make it round numbers. So you're gonna take a $50,000 pay cut. Now after taxes and all, you figure out what you take home versus what you're gonna take home. And let's say you're taking home 80, and now you're gonna cut it to 40. So you take that paycheck overage. You know the overage every week. You set up a brand new savings account, and you put the money in there, and that money doesn't exist. And all your other saving, prepping, everything else you have to do with your money, you have to do out of what's left. So you actually live with the limitation before you have it. And you may find, I can do this no problem. And then you may decide, well then, I'm not going to take this pay cut for six months. Because if I can do this for six months, I can do, and I can really, in six months, I'm really going to know whether I can handle the pay cut or not. And the beauty is at the end of those six months where I voluntarily take that pay cut, I'm sitting on a big stockpile of cash. In this case, it would be about $20,000. $20,000 I didn't have to go into this before. That's a reserve. That's my bailout. That's my bug out fund, right? It's my bailout fund for myself. Self-funded bailout. I made a mistake because long-term didn't work out the way I had. I've got this to rely on. I can go draw on it. So it does two things. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, though, is if this is what you really want to do, then you need to figure out how to do it. If you really hate what you're doing and you know what you want in life, go after it. I'll say that to anybody. Next thing, though, is in your industry, I might consider some other things if I were you. Do you just love flying planes or do you just love to fly? And the reason I ask is that there is a lot more work out there for someone who is certified to fly helicopters than fixed wings. Because there's a lot less certified pilots for rotorcraft than there are for fixed wings. And the reason I know this is my son kicked this idea around with a future in aviation for himself. And we took him out to a school to learn how to fly helicopters. And, I mean, you wouldn't believe what an instructor makes. They make like, I don't know, it's like 25 bucks an hour to teach people to fly a helicopter for a first job. Uh, some of the, I think this place, she said, if I hire a, a student to be an instructor, they will put them on salary and it, it ends up being like 40 grand a year. Uh, and she said that was actually very high for an instructor, for an entry level instructor to just get your basic certification. And your first jobs usually are as, as basic instructor, which is a little scary. 
um, for the guy that's the student, I guess. But you do a lot of simulation, uh, simulator time and things like that. But once you have some basic experience that there's a lot of stuff out there, and you might end up, you know, flying guys out to oil rigs or something for kind of your first gig. You might have to travel a lot in the beginning. But once you get some turbo experience and all, getting like the big show for these guys is like flying the life flight helicopters and things like that. They make a pretty damn good living. And to me, it's a little bit less effect because you say, well, it's gonna, the, the economy's gonna get better, the aviation industry's gonna get better, there's gonna be more jobs for pilots, but the reality is, businesses have been reducing their travel for years. And things like video conferencing and all that have really pulled that back a lot. Now there's people that are always gonna travel. They have to for their jobs. When I was a regional salesperson for Fluke and, and was running 35 reps, I had to get out there in the field and go see people. So in that case, you're gonna fly. But there's this big segment that have always been the traditional traveler that's being cut back. Um, as people's budgets get impacted and we have bad financial times, people cut back. They just do. And that makes the commercial airline industry very cyclical. And I also think that a lot of that money that's sitting there in the pension funds and all is very much at risk. A lot of these guys that think they're going to finish up their career in, in commercial airlines and collect a big check and, and full health insurance for the rest of their life, I think the reality of the rubber meeting the road is sooner or later going to hit that industry as hard or harder than it hit the automotive industry. And I don't even think it's fully in the automotive industry yet. The UAW got out of, out of these bailouts way too much. Those of those industries are ripe for sooner or later a huge bust of all that supposed pension money just going away or a lot of it going away. Where if you're flying helicopters for people to get to the hospital, that's not cyclical. If you're flying people out to rigs to pull oil out of the ground, that's cyclical but nowhere near as cyclical. And then there's a lot of private industry there. So I'm, I'm not telling you to change from fixed wing to rotor. I'm just saying you might want to c consider it Just because, go look at how many new private fixed-wing pilots there are every year, how many licenses are issued, and how many of those vie for commercial jobs. They don't just stay as a private pilot, but actually want to go into that commercial certified level. And then look at the total number of people that come out with a rotorcraft certification and go into the commercial fields. And you'll see a huge difference. Now, to be fair, there is a lot more fixed-wing aircraft flying around than rotorcraft. But... There's not that big a discrepancy in available entry-level positions. Just a thought. But anybody out there listening to me today, if you hate where you are, if you hate what you're doing, career-wise, life-wise, make a change. If it costs you financially, it will probably save you emotionally, spiritually, uh, overall. I was talking to Marjorie from Backyard Food Production uh, last week when I was watering my garden uh, right before the fruit was going to come in. And I said to her, I said, you know what, financially, taking this show to full time and walking away from my professional career was the dumbest thing that I've ever done in my life. Fin pure financially speaking, we make enough money to pay the bills here, but I made way more than enough money to pay the bills in my professional life, and I had plenty of, plenty of, of that run left in me. But I was also getting to a point where I hated people. And if you've listened to this show, you know that I don't really hate people, I love people. But I was feeling like I hated people. I hate crowds. I've always hated crowds. Always will hate crowds. But I like people. I was getting to the point where I just didn't want to talk to people. Where I didn't want to see people. Where I just wanted to be alone. I was angry. I was snapping at my wife when I would come home. This show, when I started doing it, even though I was working harder than I ever was, and I kept that job for another year and a half, two years, 
it made everything better. And then when I finally was able to get myself into a position to split off from it, and we did that too. We said, let's live without the income for a while. See if we can really do it. And we did. Make that adjustment. Whatever it is for you, you can do it. It's probably not a podcast on survivalism. There might be a handful of people that join me in this realm and do it successfully, but it's whatever does it for you. It may be heavily internet-based. It may be heavily based in just the, the natural hands-on brick-and-mortar world. It may be a different job, a different career path. Whatever it is, go for it. Don't let your fear and uncertainty about the future, about a failing economy, keep you from doing it. I believe that we're all sent here. Actually, I believe we all choose to come here, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, with certain things that we want to learn from and do in our lives and certain things we want to do for other people in our lives. And that the further we get away from that path, the more miserable we become. And the closer to that path we are, the more fulfilled and happy we become. And it is not really about how much money is in our pocket, but how much value comes into our lives. And that might sound like a very optimistic view for a survivalist, but I've said this before. What are we surviving for? You know, there's people that want to, you know, build a, a, an entire underground structure, and I don't mean like what we're going to talk about tomorrow. I mean like completely off-grid underground. You never even see the light of day again. And they're going to live down there like a mole. And I can live through anything. You know, short term to get through an acute situation, fine, I'll go underground. But long term for my life... Give me liberty or give me death. That's what it really comes down to for me. And if I don't have the liberty to at least chase my dreams, what liberty do I really have? And it's all nice and well to talk about why well, I'm making sacrifices for my family. And we've all done it. And there's places for it. But there's also a place for living for yourself. So take the pay cut. Do it first. You know, fictitiously. Create an account. Put the money in there. You can't touch it suffer through it, struggle through it, make it work, and then take the pay cut. But definitely chase your dreams. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution. 